0: The things that make us different don't have to tear us apart. And we've been talking about how in Jesus that we are one. And that even the things that make us different, they pale in comparison to what unites us, our common faith in Jesus Christ. And as a church, we want to be a church that that helps people see the love and the unity and the reconciliation that is available through Jesus Christ. And so if you've missed any of those messages, you can go to our website or our church's YouTube channel, and you can catch those uh, previous messages there. But today, I'm not going to preach to you. Don't don't shout amen or anything like that. I'm not going to preach to you today. Today, we're just going to have a conversation. And one of the topics we talked about in this series was the importance of learning to listen. To to sit down with other people and just listen to their experience, see what they've been through, uh, find points of empathy and agreement. And even if we don't always agree, to be able to find common ground to work forward on the problems of our culture and right here in our own community. And so when I prayed about that, I thought, you know, there's a friend that I have that I would love to have a a conversation with. So I thought about calling him up and saying, let's do coffee together. Of course, with COVID 19, it's kind of hard to do all of that anymore. And then I thought, man, it'd be awesome to just have that conversation. But I want other people to listen in on that conversation as well because I know this godly man. And so I, the Lord just impressed on me to call him up and to invite him to our service today to have a conversation. So I want you to give a great Fort Caroline Baptist Church welcome to a retired Chief Greg Burton of the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. Let's give him a hand. And Greg, have a seat. We are so glad to have you with us today. And we are glad to have your beautiful wife, Lakeisha Burton, with us today. She is right here on the front. So welcome. Now, Lakeisha is the zone commander for Zone 2, which is right here where our church is. Don't you feel better already? Don't you feel safe right now to know that we've got our commander right here uh, in the the house? And uh, so we are so thankful for you, too. Thank you for being here. Look, let me
1: tell you. When I received your call, first of all, I was surprised, <laughs> not, not surprised because I didn't think Pastor Ricky would call me, but um, I was in Columbus, Ohio, doing some work with their police department, and uh, when he, um, actually, he, we were talking through Messenger, yep. and um, when he asked me um, to come to the church, um, I was, I felt very blessed and I felt blessed because <clears throat> this man asked me. The way we met was um, years ago, I was a chief downtown, and um, we, were, we decided to start, start Bible study in the police memorial building, in headquarters. And so we have a chapel there, and I was like, this chapel needs to be used. So I got together with a couple of uh, Christians, there are many, believe it or not, in the sheriff's office. Um, so I got together with a couple of uh, Christians. I said, hey, look, let's start a Bible study. Um, and we decided we're going to look for pastors that are out there preaching the truth, the truth gospel, the truth to um, their communities, and to ask those pastors to come in. And I said, you tell me the name of some good pastors. And this name came up. (laughs) I did not know him, but we got in contact with him. He said, would you come and do a Bible study for us? And he did several for us, and um, he has expressed that he loved it. And we loved having him there because the word was so pure and heartfelt, organic. And this man being your pastor, I know you know his heart and what he means to you. So thank you, Pastor Ricky, for inviting me and
0: my wife. Thank you so much, and what an honor to get to know you guys over these last few years and to be able to come down and to bless you guys and minister, but I got the bigger blessing. Uh, There wasn't a time that we did the Bible study that I'm supposed to be there blessing you guys, but it would always end with you guys circling me and praying for me, and laying hands on me, and I want you to know that made an impact on me. It made a difference, and I love that I got to park in the loading zone right in front of the police department. I did not get a ticket. <laughs> that was awesome. It's good to have perks. And uh, so, yes. so thank you yes. so much for being here. And you guys are—you are, have a nonprofit now um, called do. Tisha's Hands. And, and before we start our conversation, I just you, could you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So my wife um, had a twin sister uh, named Tisha. And um, she was disabled at an early age um, by cerebral palsy. And so um, she was not supposed to live out of her teen years, but God blessed her to live until they were 43 years old. Amen. So at about two and a half years ago, um, she passed away on March 3rd. And my wife and I, we do mission work all, literally all over the world. We actually have an adoptive daughter in uh, Malawi, Africa, and that's a whole different story, but we do mission work all over the world and right here in Jacksonville. So we decided that so many people donate to us, we need to put this under the umbrella of a uh, nonprofit. and what better name than Tisha's Hands, because we know that had Tisha been able, she couldn't talk and she couldn't walk, and over the years she, she, she was bedridden, um, she would have been able, she would have done the work that um, we are doing. So we seek to um, bring the gospel and to bless people that are the most vulnerable people in our society. And you can go to our website. I created the website. I knew absolutely nothing about websites, but you too will teach you anything. And so it is Tisha's Hands, T-E-S-H-A-S, Hands. And so um, we brought uh, Pastor Ricky one of our t-shirts and our wristbands that we that we have. So we have been blessed to do so many things through Tisha's hands. And um, so um, if you know of anybody that needs assistance or blessing, contact us. We'd be more than happy to bless them.
0: That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things that we love to do as a church is uh, connect with community partners and nonprofits who are making a difference in people's lives. And so we'll we'll post more about Tisha's Hands on our website and our Facebook page. And so um, just wanted you to know lo- we love you yeah. and love what you're doing. and We're praying for you guys for that Thank great you. ministry.
1: Now, Pastor Ricky, let me ask you a question. All right. Do I look at you or do I look at the camera?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it may be, you do what you're comfortable. It, it may be harder because to I wanna, look at me. <laughs> you know,
1: we have had conversations. That's right. And, That's right. And so we're having a conversation, but we have uh, a lot of people that have, that want to, to be in on the conversation Absolutely. as well. So didn't want to think that we are shutting people out.
0: That's right. You, know, you make yourself at home. <laughs> okay. Thank you God. know, and after uh, George Floyd's unrighteous death, is killing. It devastated me. I know just to see that horrific event um, played out on the news and social media was just like a, a punch in the gut to me personally. And I started calling some of our church members, black church members, and I just wanted to know how are you doing. And Greg, many of them were hurting. Yes. Uh, there were some who were angry. There were some who were just questioning how many more times will things like this happen. And that was part of what prompted me for this series. Um, Of course, we're also in an election season. And I thought, you know, there are so many things that can divide us. And and the church needs to come together in unity around Christ. But we also need to be proactive in seeking to solve issues and needs. And one of the things that I feel is important is for people to learn to listen to each other. I feel like we're missing each other so often in our culture that things have become so polarized and so divided Over important issues. We don't need to minimize the issues, but there's not a lot of conversation. There's just a lot of confrontations, it feels like. Yes. And so so that was part of what prompted me to say, I need to have more of these kind of conversations with the people that I know and love, my friends, my neighbors, people like you, but also wanted to help our church learn some of those skills of, of learning to listen for empathy and understanding and, and also to hopefully find some solutions. How can we come together? And even if we don't always agree on everything, we can come together and find some common solutions that we can apply. And so that's kind of what prompted today. But, but before we get into a lot of that, I just wanted to know a little bit more about you. I know a little bit about you, yeah. but I want our church to know a little bit. Tell me about your family. Where did you grow well, up? And-
1: well, I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. Oh, yeah. Shreveport, Louisiana. I'm a country boy. <laughs> I was born um, in the in the hospital in the city, but we lived in the parish. You know, Louisiana is the only uh, state that has parishes and not counties. So I was born um, in Shreveport, Louisiana. I was third of six children to Frank and Louise Burton. We had a very, very loving home. Now, we didn't have much wealth at all. We had a house, we had clothes, we had food. A lot of it we grew in the garden that we had. (laughs) We um, had chickens, hogs, cows, we even had a horse that we were all scared to ride. (laughs) So we just kind of walked the horse around. And so, but our home was filled with love and the greatest gift that my parents gave to each and every one of us, all six, was the gift of knowing Christ. Amen. And so we were all saved at a young age and we meet once a year the second um, week of July my dad passed in 1996, and we've been doing this for 21 years. We meet, and we live from Florida to California, across the country, so we wanted all of our kids, my mom's grandkids and great-grandkids, to get to know each other, and there are 45 of us, and other than the ones who are too young, every individual in our family has um, is saved and has... Um, brought Christ into their lives Amen. and that is the Amen. legacy okay. that is the legacy of my parents um, to us so I was born in 1964 at the end of the civil rights movement so to speak it was a um, basically a year um, before the uh, I was born a year before the Civil Rights Act of 1965 mm-hmm. and my fourth birthday was seven days before the murder of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. And so, um, being my young years, were kind of developed by the Civil Rights Movement. Mm -hmm. Actually, um, living in Louisiana, um, Louisiana was one of the most segregated um, states, of course, in the South. Um, I lived in a segregated community, but I didn't live in a segregated community because that community, we could not live in the community with white people. I live in a segregated community in the country because um, after the Civil War, uh, my great-great-great-grandfather, who was a slave, was able, along with other former slaves, was able to purchase hundreds of acres of land where we live, and my mother actually lives on that land still today.
2: Wow.
1: So our community was a community of black landowners And um, so we just created, we were all, none of us were rich, but we were all family cousins, we all knew each other. Um, And so we had really a great life. We didn't know we were poor, like many people (laughs) didn't know they were poor growing up, but we had a wonderful life. And my parents um, worked in the civil rights movement. And uh, specifically, my mom and dad bought a van Um, because voting rights the right to vote um, without the poll tax and other things was passed but there were still issues um, between whites and blacks that um, blacks had problems getting to the polls or when we got there um, couldn't um, really uh, were not voting without being harassed so my parents bought a van in order to pick people up and take them to the polls and Amen. take them back home. And it's just, we would ride in that green van. the, the green, it was an ugly green van. <laughs> <laughs> but we were riding that green van back and forth, back and forth during voting time. And then, um, and then my parents, my mom specific, specifically, was instrumental in bringing um, Head Start um, mm. to Shreveport. And so, um, working with the federal government, my mom was not an educator. My mom was not a, um, um, she was not a politician, but um, she was instrumental in bringing the, the um, Head Start. Now, but I want you to know this. Look, I am not an expert in um, psychology. I'm not an expert in racial, Um, uh, bringing the races together. I'm not an expert even in um, police and community community relations, but I am an expert in my life. Mm -hmm. So I can just speak from the experiences that I have had and the things that have shaped and developed me. And so growing up in that, if you don't mind if I... No, please. Growing up in that community, I was... um, Um, and I I know probably one of the questions that Pastor Ricky wants to ask me if if I've ever experienced any racism. And I can say that I've never been in that isolated community experienced any overt racism. And I think that's because our parents shielded us um, from the overt racism. You have Mm -hmm. to understand Shreveport. During the the Civil War, um, Shreveport was attacked by the Union for, I mean, Louisiana was attacked by the Union forces, and actually Baton Rouge and New Orleans um, and Opelousas, but Baton Rouge was the capital at that time, was taken over by Union forces, and then the capital moved to Shreveport for a while. And then after the Civil War ended, and then um, um, other things, reconstruction transpired and moved back to Baton Rouge. So you had a deep-seated Um, segregationist mentality in Shreveport. So, um, but my parents really shielded us from that as we were growing up. But then came integration in Louisiana. Actually, when I was born, there were segregated bathrooms. You had colored, as they called them then, and white. Um, Schools were segregated. But then integration came about and in my elementary school years, we were bussed um, into the city where most white people live. And so now when I was in the second grade, I don't remember a bad experience, but my cousin Kathy and I, we were bused into Judson Elementary School, but we didn't ride the bus because our parents didn't want us to ride the bus. So my a cousins, her, her, her father worked for a, a funeral home. So he would take us to school every day in the funeral home's limousine. <laughs> so I know these white kids saw these black kids stepping out of this limousine. Maybe they thought we were all rich, <laughs> but they just didn't know. <laughs> so, so But I don't remember any bad experiences until... Um, I then was bused um, in the school, in the uh, city for middle school. And um, I specifically remembered uh, a very uh, trauma, uh, traumatizing, uh, traumatic uh, situation I had. Um, so myself and other young black boys were in the class in the seventh grade. And um, we were those four of us, we were told to stand up and and we were ushered out of the class. And um, I remember the kids whispering, and they were, you know, we were the only black kids. So we got, they're going to the slow class.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And even now, when I think about that, I get emotional because we were not considered, I guess, as smart. Um, But it was all four of us. Mm. And so I went home and I told my mother I was upset. I was furious. And my mother, who monitored the schools, um, came to the school and demanded that I be put back into the mainstream classes. And let me tell you, that was the catalyst for me wanting to do the best that I could educationally, because that stirred something in me. And really, as a young child, it stirred in me that I wanted to show you mm. that I'm as smart as anybody else. And, and that carried me through my educational experience. And um, in high school, I was um, in ROTC. So I went from a private to a colonel, the battalion commander. I was able to receive a scholarship to Southern University, It's HBCU in Baton Rouge. I started out as the, uh, uh, a um, uh, private, and I became the battalion commander, and I was commissioned into the United States Army as a second lieutenant.
0: Amen. And
1: that was my dream to do that, but that started with someone telling me my idea that I wasn't smart enough mm. to really be in a class with white students. And so that kind of helped shape me into who I am as the experiences. Now, not all of my experiences with white people were bad. Some of them were very good. I remember we're living in the segregated South in Louisiana. So we were so close to um, tech, the ste- Texas state line that we actually played Little League Baseball in Texas. So, my my dad coached the team, and a friend of his coached the team named Mr. McCarty. They were co-coaches, and he was a a white man, a good old country boy like my dad. (laughs) And they coached us, and they made sure we played on an integrated team. Amen. During that time, an integrated team. And my dad not only was friends with Mr. McCarty, they became best friends. Until Mr. McCarty died, we would go to his house. He lived in a trailer out in in rural Texas, and he had two children. And um, those children, they were no different from us. We didn't see the difference in each other, mm-hmm. and we had great relationships. They were like a brother and a sister to us. And then I also remember. Um, I was born with very bowed legs, and the very first Shriners Hospital was started in 1922 in Shreveport, Louisiana, the very first one, and it was a pediatric orthopedic hospital. So I had these very bowed legs, and my mom found out through conversation that um, I could go to that hospital. because early on, you know, just like here in Jacksonville, I think Brewster's Hospital was the hospital for blacks, Mm -hmm. and that was the hospital that blacks were allowed to go to, just like all over the country. So, but um, the Shriners Hospital accepted everybody. So I remember going there, and um, I was fitted with these braces, fitted with the the braces I wore at night, and the braces I wore during the daytime, and every time I see that movie (laughs) Forrest (laughs) Gump... All right, it reminds me of the braces I had and it really helped to straighten my legs out. But every nurse in that hospital, every doctor in that hospital, every um, assistant in the hospital was white and they didn't treat myself and my parents any differently than any other, any other patient. And I know that because my mom told me so. And so she's very, very happy that um, those are the experiences that have shaped me. Um, to be able to be the person that I am and address um, issues that may come up because I know now, and I've known this for a long time, you take people for who they are,
2: mm.
1: black, white, or other. You don't take people for necessarily what other people say about them, but you take people according to how they act towards you. That's right. So. Man, that's I know great. that
0: was long, but... You, you sound like a preacher. That's great. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, mentioning that, you know, Dr. King mentioned it, that, you know, the day needs to come that we judge a person based not on the color of their skin, but on the character of their their heart. And uh, so, you know, I think that is something that we need to remember uh, as we think about this, this conversation about race in our c- culture. You know, I know we, our time is limited, but one of the questions I had for you as well was, you know, it seemed to me like, you know, George Floyd's killing was a, a turning point in our country. Um, and and there, there's a lot of, of protesting and, and uh, people being vocal about we've got to change some things. Right. Um, do you have any thought on that? Why do, you th- do you think that was a tipping point? Or I, I do, um, but I think there were a lot
1: of small tipping points throughout. That's right course this country has an original sin which your pastor I'm sure has talked about and that original sin is the sin of slavery. That's right. And really um, up until the Civil War um, um, blacks had very little to say about um, what goes on in this country and then really what goes on with black people's lives. Mm. And so um, on through Reconstruction and then up through Jim Crow, especially in the South. And, but make no mistake about it, the North just had racism a little bit more subtly right. than in the South. So it's been the, um, the bane of this country for years. And um, early in 1901, I believe, um, W. B. Du Bois um, wrote a book called The Souls of Black Folk. And in that book, he talked about the very first paragraph. He said that the issue of the, or the problem of the 20th century is going to be the problem of the color line. And that's not only the problem of the 21st, 20th century, it will be the problem of the 21st century. And unless we address it, it will be the problem of the 22nd century and until Christ comes back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I do believe it was a tipping point. But also believe that black people in this country have served um, in this country for every war. In uh, 1918, or when we finally got into the First World War, and and in 43, and in the Second World War, and and, in the 50s, and the Korean War. have not really received the um, the honor that black soldiers were due coming back in 1940-55, uh, with the Supreme Court saying that um, um, segregation in the school systems was wrong. Tipping point mm-hmm. um, when um, Emmett Till was yes. murdered tipping point, white people really started to come on board. And I'm very open and forthright when it comes to talking about racial issues because we don't want to talk about it. When Medgar Evers was murdered, when Malcolm X was murdered, when Martin Luther King was murdered, those were tipping points, tipping points. All the way up to when there were black people that were killed by the hands of the police, and even when the non-black people were killed in Charleston, South Carolina.
0: That's right.
1: Tipping point. But for the most part, white people didn't really come on and start talking about this issue. When Aubrey Ahmad was killed right up the street it really started galvanizing and then when COVID came about we all had to buckle down and go inside and then we watched a man being Mm -hmm. murdered on video and we could all relate we saw a person who was supposed to be enforcing the law and protecting a man and dispensing justice, put his knee on a man's neck, and that man called out for his mama. Mm.
2: And
1: every mother in here understands that. He called out for his mama. I can remember when, you know, you've been deathly ill. Mm. I've been deathly ill. I've had cancer, a few strokes. I've had open-heart surgery. And I can remember one time I thought I was dying, really thought this was it, and I called out for my mama. Wow. All I could do And Jesus. Yep. So I think people really understood. And when you saw it on video, and we had heard, we had seen other people killed. We saw a man, a police officer shoot and kill a man in uh, North Charleston, shot him in the back. Uh, We've seen other murders, but what did, why was this the tipping point? Now, this is my perspective. I think because it was the conviction point. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We looked, and especially white people, were convicted by this. And I relate it to the conviction that you, when you come to Christ. You know, when you come to Christ, you realize I am a sinner. Mm -hmm. I am convicted. But Christ has come to save me. So you give your life to Christ, and the Holy Spirit changes your heart, but your heart doesn't catch up with your behavior. Because when that, when that change occurs through that conviction, now we have to study God's Word and be led by a pastor and be led by the Holy Spirit, and it's over a period of time. That's right. We grow. So now this is the conviction that we have brought to forth right now. And until we now take that conviction and turn it into listening Mm -hmm. and learning and acknowledging the wrongs, we will never get to where we need to be because religion without a relationship through those events that have taken place, religion without That relationship, it's just an event that occurred. That's right. Just an event. And we can just accept that event and just move on unless we take this moment right now, this turning point, to learn about each other, to listen to each other, and to acknowledge the wrongs. Nobody in here owned a slave. Nobody. Nobody in here was a slave, but it's the DNA of our country.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How do you change DNA? You change it through dramatic, traumatic situations. And then we have to move through it. And so that is why I think it was a tipping point. Yes.
0: And you're in a unique perspective to answer this question. You know, uh, Instinctively, I grew up with police officers in the family, with friends who were police officers, Um, and so I've only seen police officers in a positive light. When I was 16 and I started driving with my license, my dad had the conversation with me one time about what to do in case I was ever pulled over, and that did happen, by the way. (laughs) Um, But he only had that conversation with me once, pull over, turn off the car, put your hands on the steering wheel, say, yes, sir, no, sir. He had that conversation with me once. I've got people in our church who have that conversation regularly with their black boys before they go out on the weekend because they're worried. But then sometimes we we get into this back and forth debate, you know, well, black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter. Yes, but black lives matter started, I'm not going to get into the organization because there's much I don't agree with on the organization but started because it was just a way of saying we need to shine a light on a problem right. in this community and, and sometimes often at the hands of police officers, perhaps. Could you elaborate on that? I mean, well, am I missing something?
1: No, you're not. But I want to be both,
0: you know, I, I respect our police. I don't think most of them are bad, but I right. think that maybe there are some bad apples.
1: Right. You're dead on.
0: And I have to... I, I, I'm not a, an expert or a
1: professor of history. In my house we had the Encyclopedia Britannica. Anybody remember that? (laughs) Yes. My parents were poor, but they made sure we had money for those books because they believed in education. And so I have so many books in our home on black history because I, I believe a lot of black history has been left out, which it has been. So um, I get as many books as I can to read up on black history from early on. And so I can, through my readings, we know that the police department um, has not been um, really, um, the police have not been kind to black communities. Black people started out as three-fifths of a person and that was simply because the, the whites in the South needed to have us counted um, to get money from the federal government. So we started at three-fifths of a person. So when you can dehumanize someone, um, you can pretty much treat them any way you want to. So mm-hmm. the DNA of the police department have been, at one time, slave catchers. You know. If, you know, because there were rewards for them. So, growing up, my parents had the conversation with my brother and I, I have four sisters. So we were um, of college age, my brother's a year and a half older than I am, so we would drive from Shreveport, Louisiana, to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, on a two-lane road, it took us six hours, 250 miles. And this was the speech, every time when you get if you get pulled over by police keep your hands on the steering wheel make sure you don't look them in the eye look down if you have to because if you look them in the eye uh, they're gonna feel like you're disrespecting them and anything could happen to you when we would get to a town to fuel up we would have to call our parents because of course we had no cell phones (laughs) we'd have to go to the pay pay phone, call on the pay phone, let let them know where we were. And then, um, of course, we would then go on uh, to school, and then we'd come back. So we would do that, you know, several times throughout the semester. And one time I didn't ride with my brother. Um, He was stopped um, in this little town. And we could tell when he did call home, um, he was terrified and he said he he, he said to my mother he said I wasn't speeding mom I'm telling you I wasn't speeding and he said I was just in second gear my car can't even go that fast but she he did everything he was supposed to um, by you know our parents rules and um, he got his ticket and he went on and I can tell you that profiling is real I'm a police officer. I was a police officer for 26 years. My wife and I, we have a blended family, so um, so my, my first wife, we divorced. She, lived in, she lives in Louisiana, where I'm from, and our two daughters um, from that marriage are in Louisiana. So police officer here, I would go to Louisiana six times a year to see them, and they would live with me in the summer. Every time I got on I-10, every time, I would get pulled over, profiled. Mm. Not one time did it not happen. Black man, SUV, Florida tags. I got to be transporting drugs. Mm. Every time. And so I just got used to it. When I pull out my badge and show them I'm a police officer and they would give me a, a slow down, officer, okay, I never challenged at all. Um, So it is real, because I've experienced it as a police officer, and I've seen it um, in Jacksonville. I just want to keep it real. And I can tell you why systemic racism is what they call, is why they call it systemic. George Floyd was the bad apple. We talked about it. There are bad apples. Mm Bad apples do the atrocious things like killing people. And people say, you can't judge one bad apple um, and then judge everybody by it. That is true. Most police officers are good police officers. They look at this profession as a calling. We have some that look at this profession like a job, and some that shouldn't be here. Now the reason it's called systemic racism, what I believe is because Yes, we have the George Floyds that do the ultimate, beat somebody, kill somebody. But systemic racism is when you get stopped for no reason.
2: Mm.
1: When you get a ticket for doing something that other people, white people, would have gotten a warning for. Systemic racism is when officers drive up on a group of black boys, have a very little conversation with them, and start searching them violating their Fourth Amendment rights from search and seizure. This is systemic. That's why it's called, it is not the one bad apple, it is those apples that are becoming rotten. It's not the majority of police officers. There are police officers right here in your church Mm -hmm. that are listening to me right now. Those are probably not the police officers I'm talking about. They have any Christ in them. But then again, there are some people that are police officers that teach Bible study, teach Sunday school, that are doing some of these things, and their hearts are not right. Those are the ones that look at it as a job and not as a calling. Mm. So when it comes to Black Lives Matter, I've never looked at the site. I have no reason to look at the site. Because to me, Black Lives Matter means that my life matters too. That's right but it doesn't mean that your life is diminished anymore. That's right. Because really, your lives have always mattered Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in this country. And it's as simple as that to me. I think most of the people who say, oh, they're a Marxist organization, I have no idea. But most people don't even know what Marxists are now. (laughs) (laughs) That's the media perpetrating that part of it. That's a small part of it. But most people just want, look, my wife and I, we are, we've been to two Black Lives Matter rallies, and yesterday we were at a Blue Lives Matter <laughs> rally. We're both police officers. We're black and blue. That's right. Black and blue. And we are really, we bridge the gap. We bridge the contrast, the dichotomy between being black and being police officers. Yeah. And it's our job, we know, to be able to bring those two things together for the world to see that um, black lives matter. All lives matter. But now we need to come to the realization that because of George Floyd's death that um, black lives are just as important as any other life.
0: Amen. Amen. And you had,
1: you're a spot on. But I, I've always known that about you. Um, when we were talking and you told me that you called um, many of your black members now I didn't find that um, unusual because I know you but I praised you because 95% of the white pastors in this country have not addressed this issue let me tell you white people run this country
2: Mm -hmm.
1: unless you address this issue of racism we have no chance of dealing with it and hopefully solving it. When it comes to the black community and the police, I've always thought that the police, police feel like that we don't need to bridge the gap. We do. Mm. We created the, over history, the gap between the black community and the police department. When I was a rookie, a white police officer told me this—a white police officer whose calling was to be the police. He told me, he said, "Look, Burton, this is what I don't you want to—I don't want you to fall into this mentality. Rich people get police service, middle-class people get police response, poor people get policed. Mm. Everybody deserves police service. That's right." And from a rookie, I carried that mentality all the way through. And I carried that mentality mentality when I was in the Army, but that was on a different level. And then I became a police officer. I really took that to heart because I don't even use the words policing. I can't stand it. I cringe. Policed. I can't stand it. Mm-hmm. It is police service. Amen. And this is what I preach to my officers and I have for years. We provide services even when we have to defend our lives when we have to take someone to jail it is a service we do it and we take people to jail with dignity don't let them lose their dignity that's right and so whatever we do do it with a spirit of service
0: amen wow i don't know where our time is going to be you enjoyed this conversation we could talk for hours thank you We could talk for hours, and and we know we've only scratched the surface on things that we could get into, and we know that there's a lot we've left unsaid. But this is just a conversation, and for Greg and I, it's just a continuing conversation, not with the lights on and the cameras on, but as friends. And this is what we all need to be doing in our own personal relationships, that as individuals, if there's something I've done that I need to repent of my racism or my attitude or my, my prejudices... But I, I need to do more than that. I need, I need to, even if I'm not there and don't have that to repent of, I need to listen and build relationships with people who are different than me and, and seek to come together and to address problems, to, to, re, to reverse a lot of those policies or the attitudes or the issues. And I think most people are good people wanting to address those problems, but we yes. come at it from, from two different sides, and we see each other as enemies when we shouldn't. And and we allow the media and others to divide us. And that's not who we should be. We should be people of peace and people of reconciliation and people of hope. And people who come to the table to bring solutions, not just complaints. And people who come attacking the problem, not the other person. And that's what I love about you and respect about you. And I want you and I to keep this conversation going. And one of the things that we want to know as a church You know, and and this is something we're exploring, and I know we don't have time to get into it now. But, you know, we want to not just be a church that sings the songs and prays the prayers and listens to the sermons, shuts the lights off and goes home. Because as you said, if it's religion without a relationship, it's just an event. And and you were telling me if it's a religion without a relationship with God, it's just an event. And if it's religion without a relationship with our people and our community and our neighbors, then this is just an event. And I'm not interested in spending the rest of my life hosting events. I want to help change lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this community needs this church to be a, a, a beacon of light and hope and help. Is there any one thing that you would say that we can do? Because I know your white no. friends are asking you, Greg, what uh, can we do? What can we do? And you're getting that a million times. You,
1: you're doing exactly what God has called you to do in this time. You have started the conversation, which a lot of people, a lot of pastors, a lot of white pastors have not started the conversation. So what I would suggest that, and it doesn't really cost any money, provide a safe place mm. for people to have open dialogue, open conversation. Provide a safe place where white people can feel comfortable to talk about things that, not, not just the wrongs of, because a lot of times white people feel like, why are you blaming me? Mm-hmm. But you should give white people a, a safe place to talk about some things through Christ. Yes. Provide black people with a safe um, uh, environment, safe place to be able to say what my experiences have been. Yes. This has happened to me. This is yes. real to me. Provide those safe places for people to come together, black and white, to learn about each other, Mm. to acknowledge the goods and the bads with each other. And that doesn't cost you, only thing it costs, it doesn't cost you money, but it costs you in the ability to listen, Mm. learn, and acknowledge and feel sympathy for what is going on now. And that's the biggest thing I would suggest.
0: Amen. Thank you so much. Would you give Greg and Lakeisha a hand once again before we close in prayer?
1: I'm
0: going to put Lakeisha on the spot. Would you mind coming and standing by Greg and let us pray for you guys? I just want to pray for you too. Father, I thank you so much for this conversation today. I thank, you for bringing, I thank you for bringing Greg and Lakeisha into my life those many years ago. And I thank you that I'm a better person because of these two people who have been godly influences in my life. They've been friends. They've been partners in this community. And even when we have not always been together in the same room, I've always had them on my heart and my thoughts and prayers. And I have felt their prayers... As well for me and for this church. And Father I pray that you would take the conversation today. And by your Holy Spirit you would use it in all of our lives. And use it in our community. So that we can bring glory to Christ. So that we can help people. And God we, we have heard this month again. anew and afresh from you in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. That you've told us what is good. You've told us what you expect of us. We are called to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Help us to do that. Bless this couple. Bless their family. Bless their ministry. And we give you praise God for the great things you're going to continue to do through the burdens. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you you all. Thank you all. Give them a
2: hand.